As Leonard Cohen writes here, sometimes we think that we need to be all perfect to deserve compassion, including self-compassion. And no, as he says, you know, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked, right? Whereas, yeah. So, any uh, for any comment or question about that self-compassion practice? And we'll run a microphone to you, right, Peter? Great. So, somewhere in the back, maybe the side. There we go. First hand up. So, Peter, we'll get you the microphone. Peter will always make sure it's on. Um, that's a hint, Peter. It is on. <laughs> okay, good. Hi. So I have a question about this space. Um, maybe it's a distinction between um, approaching whatever occurs in our lives with equanimity and also allowing for the full experience of feeling and emotions, so not to usurp those or cut those off and still be in the space of equanimity, and um, if you could speak more to that space. Well, thank you for also so succinctly and clearly naming this fundamental question, and I think that you're uh, getting at something that's really important. Happily, the next section of my workshop is zeroed in right there on that, at least my, my attempt to get at the bullseye. Um, and um, I think if I could, I'll, I'll slightly duck for the moment. The, the fundamental matter for me is to, to really open to the totality of experience while at the same time letting it go and seeing through it and using experience and and through other means, gradually growing inner strengths. Both the inner strengths that uh, we need to grow to be able to really open to the totality of our experience and bear it. Uh, As well as the inner strengths it takes to really feel pleasure in the body, to be fully happy. Think about, you know, like a little kid, like when an 18-month-old, a toddler is happy, so happy, it just drips. You know, are we able to be that happy ourselves? If not, there's some kind of numbing and deadening and not opening out into the fullness of our experience. So for me, that kind of says it, you know, opening, releasing, and growing. See, there you go. All right, we're done with this section. Okay, any other questions or comments? Right here? So, where are you, Michael? Right here. Oh, good. That'll work. Yes. Um, in your book, Buddha's Brain, you quote Dogen, to study the self is to forget the self. Now, it seems to me when you're focusing all this attention on yourself with self-compassion, how are you not strengthening that self? It's such a great question, too. So... The Dogen quote, Dogen was a Japanese Zen master, uh, very profound, and he had this very pithy uh, three-statement summary of practice. He says, 
to study the way, the Dharma way, the Buddha way, you could apply that to other paths, perhaps, of growth, certainly the upper reaches of human potential. To study the way is to study the self. Now, before I do the next two, I want to define that slippery word. There are two ways to use that word. And sometimes people use them in both ways in the same sentence. Okay? I do a whole workshop here on no self in the brain. You know, and the th- last chapter of Buddha's brain is really about this. Check that stuff out. It's neat territory. One way to use the word self is simply the totality of the person. The totality of experience, the totality of individual history. Right? That's one way that the word self is often used. Uh, this body-mind <coughs> over time. The other way that self is used is in a more Western sense as a kind of internalized entity or being who looks out through the eyes. This sort of unified, enduring, uh, independent one who you are. The ego I, if you will. Okay? The Buddha's view, supported by modern brain science, to summarize my workshop in the fall, is that such a one does not exist. See for yourself what you think about that. Uh, the first meaning of self does exist. There is clearly a particular person who has continuity over time. So when Dogen says to study the way, to engage Buddhist practice, to deepen in virtue, mindfulness, concentration, as well as wisdom, is to really consider both kinds of self and their nature. Is there actually a one looking out through the eyes who's the same every time? I don't think you can find that one in your own experience, but that's an inquiry, that's an investigation. Also, what's the nature of the first sense of the word self? A particular body, a particular history. And could it also be that the nature of that particular person who has continuity over time and a unique social security number, right? Any, a set of grandparents, etc. that that meaning of the word self also arises dependently, is made up of many parts, comes and goes. Okay? So to study the way is to study the self, in both senses of that, that word. Second statement, to study the self is to forget the self. Now we're really getting into that deep end of the pool, those Zen masters, man. Oh. So succinct. To study the self is to forget the self. To gradually relax the second meaning of the word self, this ego I who possesses my precious, <laughs> my desires, my views. How dare you look at me that way? You know, all that. We gradually relax that. We forget that. We disidentify from those passing perspectives or feelings in the body. We gradually disengage from that. And we gradually forget the self even in that first meaning of the word self as the person. We get less and less caught up in the particularities of this body-mind and we get, you know, as we'll see, 
Then we move into the third statement. To forget the self is to be illuminated by all things or enlivened by all things or enlightened by all things, depending on the translation. To forget the self is to become awakened by all things, lived by all things. Isn't that profound? So that's kind of to summarize. To study the way it is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self, and to forget the self is to become enlivened and awakened by all things. And self-compassion does not strengthen the self. So then, now we have the rub. And so, it is true that certain kinds of self-preoccupations, both with the self in both senses of that word, can deepen a person's narcissism or egocentrism or vanity or self-preoccupations. You know, I grew up in Southern California, a lot of Hollywood jokes, right? Uh, Two people meet, they talk for a while, one of them holds forth. After a while, let's say it's a man, he says to the other, enough about me, let's hear about you. What did you think of my latest picture? (laughs) You know, so yeah, there are risks there. There are risks there, on the one hand. On the other hand, as much psychology shows today, and implicit in Dharma practice itself, through repeatedly internalizing the felt sense of our narcissistic needs being met, and through routinely, repeatedly internalizing a felt sense of being cared about, and receiving compassion, and receiving kindness, and receiving prizing, and joining from other people, through repeatedly taking that in, it actually helps people increasingly stop taking life so personally. And to feel already fed, so they become increasingly uh, less self-focused and more and more opened out into service and love and compassion and empathy for others. It's when the heart is hungry that it becomes very self-referential. A full heart is overflowing and has so much more love and grace and generosity to offer to others. And I think, too, there's a notion the Buddha had of the raft, the metaphor of the raft. You know, we encounter a river of suffering. We build a raft to get us across to the other side. But once this vehicle, this practice, this intermediate stage gets us to the other side, we don't keep carrying it around in our head. Right? We drop the raft and then we move on. So I think mm-hmm. what happens over time is that there's a stage of self-directed in the first meaning of the word, in the broadest sense, you know, internally, psychologically directed uh, efforts to fill the hole in the heart so that gradually over time there's a falling away of self-preoccupation. The self is increasingly forgotten, both the general sense of self and the narrow sense of self as ego-I is increasingly forgotten, and we're more and more given over to and awash in, you know, experience altogether, and others altogether, and lived increasingly by them. And that, for me, is a way to put the two together. Uh, I'd like to ask a follow-up question. Sure, and then I'll finish up with you. Uh, uh, What about uh, the sense of self as a witness that 
witnesses everything inside, outside, but isn't attached or identified with any of them. Right. You know what happens when you let people make comments and ask questions? (laughs) They bring up what they want to talk about. It's great. It's profound. You know? Okay. So my my take, and and like the Buddha said, you know, and um, I say it myself, See for yourself. Anything I say is kind of offered. See for yourself. These are really deep matters. It's very interesting already. Like, has someone asked a trivial question yet? No. You know, uh, these are all really big swings. So the short version. So the witness. Um, you could think of that witness. So there you are. Let's say you're meditating. Or you're just in a really mellow place. You're hanging out. You're sitting by the river, right? You're okay. Maybe you're not formally meditating. Your mind's pretty quiet. You're just being there. And you become increasingly aware that there isn't the ordinary sense of taking something personally or getting caught up in planning for yourself. So the kind of conventional sense of ego possessing, reacting, defending, you know, it's just falling away. But nonetheless, hanging out there in the meadow or at the river or uh, in meditation, there's also this sense of a kind of witnessing that's ongoing. Right? So we're talking about. What's the nature of that? Is that witnessing evidence that there is an entity inside? What is it? Um, The Buddha's view clearly is a major critique against the prevailing religious dogma of his day was that there is no soul essence. There is no uh, causeless soul entity that migrates from body to body eternally. Okay. See for yourself what you think is true about that. Now, there are, as Chogyam Trungpa puts it, in early Buddhist cosmology, which you don't have to buy reincarnation, but Chogyam Trungpa, this Tibetan teacher, was asked once, what reincarnates? He said, your bad habits. <laughs> so, another way to think of it is, again, this would be consistent, I think, with early Buddhist teaching, is that there are these qualities of tendencies that persist. I think of them as standing waves. They themselves are dynamic and compounded of parts and never exactly the same, but they have some persistence as a pattern. You know, like when a river flows over a boulder, there's a kind of standing wave. So there are these standing waves that, are, that arise and persist in the mind, different views or issues or neurotic complexes, whatever, or just wholesome tendencies, standing waves, and through mechanisms that are not at all clear in terms of modern physics, the view would be that in some way these tendencies, wholesome and unwholesome, pass on from body to body to body, but those tendencies are more like flotsam and jetsam, eddies in a stream that momentarily coalesce but lack any kind of enduring identity or essence, collection of twigs and leaves swirling along moving from life to life to life to life. That would be a Buddhist cosmology, and I do not want to talk anymore about reincarnation. Please. All right. So, now, 
coming in though. What is that witnessing? And how can you draw upon it for your own equanimity? Right? One way to relate to that witnessing is that there really is something transcendental, some kind of X factor, even if it's changing over time, that's looking through your eyes. And that stuff's above my pay grade. You know, I'm not going to argue for or against it. Uh, although, as personal disclosure, you know, I, I really do think, as Hamlet said to Horatio, right, there are stranger things than are dreamt of in all of your philosophies, you know, just out there. And I think holding space for mystery and not knowing is highly appropriate, even from a scientific perspective. If you think about it, 96% of reality was unknown 50 years ago, dark matter and dark energy. Uh, Two-thirds of reality, dark energy, was unknown 20 years ago. So people from a scientific, not scientific, but scientific perspective who dogmatically argue that if we don't know about it, it doesn't exist, are for me profoundly unscientific because deeply rooted in science is the understanding that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> right? So in that context then, so one possibility is there is some kind of transcendental something or other looking through the eyes that supports or is woven into that experience of witnessing. And for many people, honestly, uh, opening to that and taking refuge in that perspective is a profound source of equanimity. I want to call it out and legitimize it pragmatically, if nothing else. If nothing else is a personal raft till you come to the ultimate wisdom of Nibbana, which I'm not yet there, right? Uh, in the Buddhist frame, if any of us were there, we wouldn't be here, because if you've been there, you don't be, get here, again, if you follow me. You don't get reborn. So if you're born, you haven't experienced Nibbana yet, in that ultimate, ultimate sense. Okay, so my point is that another way of refuging in that witnessing which avoids the pitfall of turning it into an entity, is to think of witnessing, and I talk about this in the last chapter of Buddha's Brain, when I talk about um, subjectivity does not necessarily imply a subject. There can be a witnessing that's intrinsic in every moment of ordinary experience, what in philosophy is called ipseity a fundamental first-person perspective that experience is engaged from a perspective that has roots in the body that are accumulated over time, we can engage that witnessing while realizing that what the brain does is indexes across many moments of witnessing to find what's common across those moments of witnessing and and turns that into a presumed entity. In other words, there are many moments of subjectivity the brain does is looks for what's common and turns it into an entity, you know, in a well-intended way. But actually what's only present in any moment of experience is process, is witnessing. There's no noun there. There are only <laughs> verbs. See? And again, you can take refuge in that. You can take refuge in the witnessing because as soon as you think there's a witnesser, suddenly we've got a fragile witnesser Pray to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, more Hamlet, right? And then we start sliding down that slippery slope toward defensiveness and grasping and fussing and fighting with others. So, okay? That's my take. All right. In a little more grounded way, 
Let's talk about growing inner strengths. 